My name is Valerie Plame. I am a former covert CIA operations officer. I loved my career. I got to travel the world and recruited assets. My emphasis was on nuclear counterproliferation, essentially making sure rogue nation states or black marketeers or terrorists do not get nuclear capabilities. And it's something I still care about passionately. That career ended rather suddenly in July 2003 when a conservative columnist, Robert Novak, at the urging or behest of senior Bush administration officials, outed me, betrayed my true CIA identity. (laughs) That started this, my whole life changed. It was going down Alice's rabbit hole, where white is black and black is white, and nothing was the same after that. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. In this first season of The Women, every week I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with former CIA agent Valerie Plame. Well, I would add the most important job I have, which is I'm a mother of twins. They are now college freshmen, boy-girl twins. And to paraphrase Jackie Onassis, no matter what you do in your life, if you screw up raising your children, nothing else matters. And I really hew to that. I mean, they— Those are high stakes. Those are high stakes. Those are very high stakes. (laughs) At 6 a.m. on July 14, 2003, Valerie was asleep when the daily newspaper was delivered to her front doorstep. Forty years old with three-year-old twins, Valerie's friends and neighbors in D.C. thought of her as just another jet-setting consultant. But in the sixth paragraph of a column by Robert Novak, Valerie's true identity was revealed. Her life as a covert agent working in the Middle East on a task force to fight nuclear proliferation for the CIA was exposed. Her career and personal safety were threatened. The decision to expose Valerie was a strategic move and an explicit betrayal by her own government. Two weeks prior, Valerie's then-husband, the late Ambassador Joe Wilson, had published an op-ed in the New York Times questioning the legitimacy of the Iraq War. Joe Wilson had feared that President Bush had strategically used 16 words in his State of the Union address to begin a war. Vice President Dick Cheney and his chief of staff, Scooter Libby, were gaming how to retaliate or at least how to change the story. So they leaked Valerie's identity. It was rumored that Dick Cheney had said that she was, quote, fair game. After the leak, Valerie had spent about two years trying to navigate a new and non-covert job in the CIA. She would write a memoir about her experience called Fair Game. In March of 2007, Valerie and her husband decided to leave D.C., and start a new life in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The same day that Valerie flew out west with her family, Scooter Libby was found guilty of five counts of perjury, obstruction of justice, and making false statements. Scooter would never spend a day in prison and, in fact, was formally pardoned by the current administration. Valerie is now running for Congress to represent the 3rd District of New Mexico. I visited Valerie in Santa Fe to ask her about her work in counterproliferation, her experience in motherhood, and navigating betrayal. I'm interested in starting at the beginning, and I want to know how someone's upbringing leads them to become a covert spy. Would you tell me how your parents, Diane and Sam, met? 
My parents are both gone now, but they were very important in helping me become who I am. They met in Germany in the late 50s. My father was an Air Force officer, and he was stationed in Frankfurt am Main. And my mother was an elementary teacher teaching school to the children of the officers. And they met at the officers' club, and they married in Philadelphia in 1960. And they had a, a very happy marriage. My, my parents were of modest means, for sure, but they saved their money. The money that they did have, they always spent on travel. In 1985, your mom sent you a clipping, Mm -hmm. and it changed the course of your life. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah, she she cut out of the newspaper an ad from the CIA, which is— Kind of ironic because my mother was quite overprotective. Like, she didn't want me to go in the ocean above my knees. I mean, that's just how she was. Um, it was one of those, see the world, serve your country. And I've told my mother in later years, I said, see what happens when you're o- overprotective? If you had just given me a little bit more latitude. <laughs> well, she probably thought you'd become an analyst and didn't realize. You would. <laughs> she probably know. didn't think you would thrive in paramilitary <laughs> training. I don't know what she thought. So can you describe the farm? The farm is a training site for the CIA. It's outside of Washington, is what I can say. Uh, And I was there early on for two very important pieces of training. One, paramilitary, um, which is really to build esprit de corps among your class and for the instructors to have another opportunity to really evaluate who you are and how you thrive or not under pressure. You know, it's like basic training. And uh, I did get to jump out of airplanes and fire a variety of weapons and blow things up and (laughs) went through interrogation. It was really challenging, but it was also camp for adults. If you were in halfway decent shape and you realize they're not going to kill you um, (laughs) and, and just put it into perspective, I thought it was a hoot. One day for your parachute training, they had you finish all the jumps in one mm-hmm. afternoon. So I think you did five mm-hmm. or six. Mm-hmm. You kept going up because yeah. the weather was going to yeah, be bad. Yeah, there was a storm coming in. I'm like, we're all getting our wings. So you, you'd go up, jump out. <laughs> They'd scoop you up, get in the airplane, take off again. And this was— I think I wrote in my margins of my book, My Kind of Girl. I know. <laughs> it's like, okay, we got to get this done. So that was the paramilitary part. That's what you do first. The second part was for people like me, hired to go into operations. You go back to the farm and you learn tradecraft, which is the proper word for how you spy, how you recruit, how you communicate, how do you keep yourself safe, how do you identify or put out surveillance, you know, the tricks of the trade, so to speak. And that was very intense, as it should be. But again, they are not only seeing how well you do, it's another opportunity for the instructors to evaluate you and your who you are. Because even though there's already been quite a selective process to get into the CIA, they want to keep washing people out, basically. And then how did you find out about your first assignment? But as I recall, you have to— um, rank order where you'd like to go, which is like, it's a joke. Like, yeah, sure you want to go to Vienna. I was selected to go, I can say publicly, somewhere in Europe. So I do have a technical question about being abroad and being an agent. Mm-hmm. And this is this would be the most important thing for me to know. Okay. How does one date? <laughs> Techno- highly technical. Well, it is odd. Generally speaking, 
my male counterparts, when they either dated or if that's a euphemism for slept with a cute foreign national, generally it was looked at as, well, boys will be boys. Of course he's going to sleep with someone. Of course they're going to have sex. If it got more serious and you're supposed to report it and they do, you know, all of that, as you need and you, to. And do you bury it in, like, a daily report? You're like, is it, like, <laughs> at the very bottom, you're like, oh, and by um, the way. went to a cafe, um, bought a pack of cigarettes, <laughs> slept with a really nice girl, not sure where it's going, but, you know, who wants to tempt fate? And then I went to bed around um, 1,200. <laughs> I, w- I know. I wish— I wish you were so subtle. No, you need to go to your supervisor and say, here's what's happening, which is really just more I, – I found it mortifying. But for the women, my female colleagues, I felt that there was definitely a double standard. Oh, well, you're going to be emotionally involved here, mm. aren't you? Mm. I mean, yes, they do have a protocol. You have to go through that. There's a lot of people in the agency, no surprise, who have met and married foreign nationals. They've become U.S. citizens. But you have to go through a vetting process for all the reasons you might imagine. I found the whole thing just really hard, which is why they say the CIA is the world's largest and most secretive dating service, because it's just easier to stick with people who know what you do, right? Why go out of the pond if you don't have to? (laughs) Depends how attractive the pond is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. After your first assignment, you got two master's degrees, one at London School of Economics and one in Bruges. Then you were stationed back in D.C., and you became a NOC, N-O-C, a non-official official. Cover officer. Cover officer. Mm-hmm. Which and, I can't confirm, by the way. Okay. Is that the kind of job that one applies for or is cherry-picked? I think the best thing I can say is, to answer that question, is to explain really in more general terms uh, the types of cover. There are many, many. On one end, you have official cover, and that's where you have uh, affiliation with the U.S. government. And that might be under State Department cover or there are some others. Um, You just don't go around saying overseas that I work for the CIA. At the other end of that scale is non-official cover, where you have no overt affiliation with the U.S. government. So to the world that's looking in, you are working for Acme Storm Door Company. And there's a lot of covers and types in between, depending on the circumstance, how deep it is, how extensive. And it really is situationally dependent. So if you're going to say, well, yes, I graduated from Harvard and then I went to Oxford on a scholarship, somehow that should be reflected. If you would introduce yourself to me at a friend's dinner party in D.C. and I said, my name is Rose, I make podcasts, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you do, Val? I'm a consultant, which is the catch-all for, I mean, everyone, so many people in Washington are consultants. And it's a little bit eye-rolling in that it's just so ubiquitous, and it does explain a lot of travel and a lot of vagueness. And and then you just turn the conversation to, oh, what kind of podcast do you make? Oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> I do the that's same so cool. thing to avoid hearing someone telling me, you know a podcast you should do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was just vague enough. And when I was living and based in Washington but traveling all the time, that was really just enough. And abroad, you have a different way to say it. It really depends what I'm trying to accomplish. If I'm trying, really working a target, I am a specific consultant that they would be interested in and they want to talk to me again over lunch. You know, it just depends. 
Many people have a hard time keeping a secret and often feel like they want to at least confide in one person. Mm -hmm. From the easy to the hard, where do you fall in or is it just circumstantial? I never found had an issue with that. Um, maybe that's just my personality makeup, but there's also a really good reason that you are keeping the secret. It is not a whimsy. Um, you are keeping it. You're n not telling your friends and family, for the most part, where you're working because that is a burden for them to carry, and you don't want to have to give that to them. And you are also keeping safe your asset, and that's their their security is paramount. I like to think I'm a discreet person in all aspects of my of my life. And when people say, well, I just want to tell you this, you know, I really take that to heart. <laughs> okay, I won't say anything. <laughs> when did you meet Joe Wilson? I met him in 1997 at the Turkish ambassador's residence in Washington. And it was, um, I was, uh, as we talked about dating earlier, I was so delighted to be with someone that had a general understanding and a security clearance of, you know, what I was doing and, and why it mattered that he couldn't tell anyone. <laughs> I was thinking that, you know, in the afterward, I think, uh, it's in your memoir, it's mentioned that you had told a girlfriend that you were looking for someone older, well-traveled, someone who lived in Europe. And I was thinking like, wow, Valerie's really tapped into the power of the secret. <laughs> That's really cool. oh. <laughs> oh well. Remember that? I, yeah, exactly. I don't know if just saying it out loud manifests anything. Right. But we have two amazing children and he served his country. He was a genuine hero, not just once, but many, many times. So I I really respect that. I think that this um really core value of integrity um, and really is like a compass that I think is like a, a theme that comes over um, many times in all of all of your work. One of the things that I love most about your writing is some of the details. In Fair Game, you describe motherhood. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really hit me is I think this is the first time that anyone has been truly honest about that I've you know, and I have friends and family members who all have children, but mm -hmm. the real shift, like people say, mm. people say, oh, your life changes, but I always am like, how? <laughs> like, how do you change as a core person? And I think about these details about when you came home from the hospital. First of all, you were shocked that there wasn't, like, educate. Like, nobody told you anything. They're like, no, here's your, ba here's your baby. I know. Here, here, go home and, you know, do something with these things. Right. I You're was like, today? shocked. Like, you are kidding me. You're putting them in my care? And here I had I had, um, I had, had done a lot of really interesting, <laughs> responsible things. I had babies rather later in life. I was so unprepared. I didn't have younger siblings or, you know, I didn't do a lot of babysitting when I was a kid. So I really didn't have a clue. It was all this fantastical thing. But the hardcore reality of it, um, particularly twins, and I did, as I write about, I, I did suffer from postpartum depression, which is a total chemical 
uh, you know, your hormones are just all over the place. And as a result of that, I argued a little bit with my editor to include that chapter in the book because I thought that was really important. It's like, okay, it's not the spy stuff, but this is really who I am. And, And so he put it in, and I'm so grateful he let me do that because so many people have come up to me having read that and go, oh, this helped me understand it better, or my sister went through that, or, um, wow, even you suffered from this, uh, even though you did all these other things. Since that time, I've done a lot of work around perinatal mental health, and it just, because there's such a stigma in this country dealing with mental health issues, much less around the birth of a child. Well, birth and motherhood, I think, are still very private sphere in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. We don't really have a maternity leave or oh, no. maternity oh, care. No. And oh, so no. I think that that is part of the the privacy is, is a much, well, you know, there's not a lot of public support. Um, we are the only industrialized nation in the world that does not provide significant Uh, maternity leave or paternity leave, for that matter. We talk a lot about, oh, you know, children are our future and the family is so important. But when it comes down to quality, affordable child care and the the other policies of fitting around that, forget it. We have a ways to go. A big part of your work when you're working counterproliferation is is looking at the Middle East. And I was wondering if maybe you could give us an example of the kind of operation that you were running. So this is after 9-11, run up to the Iraq War. I was working in what was like a task force, and it was focused on trying to figure out what the heck was going on, particularly in the nuclear sphere in Iraq. We had very little information, very little intelligence, because we closed the embassy after the first Gulf War. Saddam Hussein had kicked out the UN weapons inspectors in 1998. So in, by this time, 2002, we had very little intelligence to understand uh, what the Iraqis might be up to in terms of any WMD, nuclear, biological, chemical. So um, my job was to uh, figure out who the key scientists were, what were the key locations, um, how were they financing it, how were they procuring their material, the whole thing, and, and building it really from scratch because we had we had very little information. Your 2007 memoir, Fair Game, was made into a film in 2010 starring Sean Penn as your husband Joe Wilson and Naomi Watts played you. And there's a clip that I really appreciate that captures you and your job. It's in Kalpur and is confronting an asset. Your car was swept an hour ago. Do not get out. If you get out of this car, I can't protect you. Who are you? Let go of my arm. Who are you? Now! We need information about your uncle, contacts, shipments. If you help us, we help you. Because I promise you one thing. Right now, you have no idea what we can and cannot do. There is a moment when you have to stop playing footsie and you have to drop pretense. And it's scary for everyone, but you have to get to the heart of the matter. And you should have a pretty good idea of where it's going to go, but you don't know for sure, of course, you know. But you need to be prepared and sort of the chess moves. Okay, if this happens, then I do this and this, and he does that. If that happens, I do this and this. So you have to be prepared for that. 
I mean, I always, um, I I keep thinking of follow the money. (laughs) Yeah, that's important, but it's not the only thing. You can follow the money, but who are the key players? Who comes out of Iraq? Who could we approach? Because you have to think about it in creative operational terms as well. The thing that really boggles me is you were working so hard. You were you, we're all on the same team, so it's really interesting this political <laughs> backlash. Like, yeah, like you would think, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you know, it's such a quagmire because you're dealing with rogue nation states, you're dealing with nation states, you're dealing with egos in the biggest sense. And when I think of a nation, for example, like Iraq, is like an extension of Saddam Hussein's ego, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or the Bush administration being an extension of the neoconservative ego. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think about how of anybody they would want on their side. It would be a military person from a you, military you family. Would think, but I don't think they thought it through like that. But this is what I am so confused by, is people well, in the highest office not thinking through <laughs> the consequences. Here's, here's what I think happened, and this is just my speculation. So Joe writes his op-ed piece in on July 7th, 2003. At that particular moment in time, the administration is feeling particularly vulnerable because no WMD has been found. Combat operations are pretty much done, but the insurgency is really picking up. There's a vacuum, and and Ba'athist party has been completely overnight dissolved. It's just chaos, complete chaos. And here comes along a highly respected, credible diplomat, an ambassador, who says, you know, I really take exception. I don't believe that there was this yellow cake uranium transfer from Niger to Iraq. Uh, and furthermore, I believe that the intelligence was was all cooked up. Um, I believe that that hit just at the moment in time when the White House, the political advisors, uh, Karl Rove, Scooter Libby, were feeling very vulnerable in the whole administration story of why we went to war. And as a result, they were immediately pushing out this story. Joe Wilson is a crackpot or, you know, he's this, cra- he's this crazy uh, Democrat. And by the way, his wife works for the CIA and she sent him on that trip. And they were just spinning. My sense is it just it went beyond what they had ever anticipated that it would. What people forget is the day after Joe's op-ed appeared, the White House did issue an apology saying, you know, those 16 words. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. Those 16 words never should have appeared in the president's State of the Union address. I mean, it was sort of like, uh, yeah. And Joe thought he had accomplished what he, okay, you know, you hold your government to account. But then it was a week later when my name was revealed. And I think the best way of putting it is, I think what happened to us in many ways focused a general sense of rage and confusion over, wait a minute, now why again? Are we at war with Iraq? And I can't tell you, I don't know if it's true or not, but over the years, I can't tell you the number of people that have come up to me and said, I I remember reading that op-ed in the New York Times that day. Um, You know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But everyone feels like they, they remember seeing that because it really was a moment where people went, huh, that's how I best understand it. 
I also think of it as it's um, a simple story that there were two sides. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing that I still don't understand, how did how did the White House get your name? I still don't. I have my I have my suspicions, but I don't know for sure. Okay. But there are plenty of ways they could do that, you know. But yeah. um, it's just I just yeah, I, still... I don't know. I don't know for sure is the answer. You rode that wave as long as you could and then over a series of a few years realized that you could have another life. To me, the hardest thing for me in this this story is understanding how you or if you have accepted the the change in your career. Oh, you have no choice. You have to play the hand you're dealt. Um, so that happened. The, the outing happened in 2003. It was just complete and utter chaos for Frankly, years. It was a political story that went on and on and on. And um, so finally, in 2007, Scooter Libby, Vice President Cheney's chief of staff, was convicted on four out of five counts. Literally the day after he was convicted, uh, we moved from Washington, D.C. to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we are now. And we had to, just to get out of Washington. And we uh, tried to rebuild our personal and our professional lives. Uh, And uh, our community was very welcoming, but it was, um, yeah, I mean, I I loved what I did. I miss my job. I miss my career. But you can't, you have to go, okay, new circumstances and, and how to adjust. Before your cover was blown, what was the job that or the career that you were building for yourself that you were thinking, like, this is where I would like to be going? I wanted to be sort of the head boss, the chief of station of a big overseas post. That was just the cat's meow. You had all that power. You were of your domain. You were outside of Washington. I thought that was fantastic. And then if you wanted to go beyond that, then it would be deputy director of operations, uh, the big cheese over all of that. Um, I never particularly wanted to be director of the CIA just because it was so nakedly, overtly political. And you don't get to do operations. You're testifying before Congress. And, you know, that that's not nearly as much fun. Right. Answering calls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so much of what happened to you, what happened to your cover, the political backlash, was also wrapped into what was happening to our country. Mm-hmm. Do you miss having a secret? Uh, yes and no. Um, I miss my job. I, I don't think of it in terms of a secret. My life is way more open now, uh, but I didn't I didn't find that either onerous nor particularly enlightening before. It was just the way it was. Not so much a secret, but feeling like I'm integral to something so big and nobody knows. Oh, uh, I never thought about it in that way. Uh, it just I'm I'm just sad that I no longer get to work on the things that I did that I thought were really worthwhile. However, there have been other opportunities, much more overt. For instance, I helped narrate a documentary on the dangers of nuclear war called Countdown to Zero. I've been very involved in in other ways about that, but it's just different. That transition uh, is one that completely fascinates me. Your, your transition from trust the machine and serve to question and speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it happened over a couple years. Um, I just, first, you have to come to terms with 
Did the president lie? Did he really lie? Would he really have lied to take our country into war? Or that the whole system was rigged in such a way to push toward a policy desire of a particular partisan viewpoint, in this case, neocons? Um, turns out, yes, would be the answer. But of course, it's it's extremely complicated. But to come to terms with that and understand that uh, took some time. I mean, prior to that, I was just very, my head was in the operational weeds, right? I tried to run the best, most secure operations I could, making sure that I was doing that job. And then you get pulled back and you see, let's just say my political education was fast and furious, you know, of how things actually work. You know, you've, you seem to me, you seem to have um, found strength in using your name and using your voice, and you've embraced that. Um, I, but I wonder, have you gotten used to this new role of anti-establishment? Mm. How, have you gotten comfortable with that? Mm. I would say that it did take me some time one, to recognize that I had a voice because, of course, you know, everything prior to that was was <laughs> was all about being discreet and not drawing attention to yourself. And But then when I realized I had a voice that I could speak about things that I really care about, whether it's nuclear weapons, whether it's postpartum depression, whether it's uh, early childhood education, um, and maybe draw people's attention to that. I thought, oh, okay, um, because I'm I'm not a natural public speaker. I wouldn't call myself shy anyway, anyway but I'm not a, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm not a showman in that way at all. Um, so finding that path through and finding some level of comfort in that um, has taken some time. So I had an assumption about you, mm-hmm. and that was is that I, um, from initially reading your book, I thought you were a Republican. I mean, maybe when you work in government, you don't think that uh, that would partisan. be true. No, not at all. First of all, I was raised in a Republican household, but this is when Republicans were all about strong defense and strong fiscal policy. Okay, you know, nothing whatsoever to do with the so-called Republican Party of today. Secondly, when you serve overseas, you do not serve as a Democrat or Republican. You serve as an American. And finally, my own, my parents and my own social sensibility was always very liberal. As it sorted itself out, I mean, the parties have really changed dramatically over the last 20 years. Um, it's at the point where I have no idea what the Republican Party stands for. Is it just sort of been taken over as a host for the parasitic Trumpism? Um I don't know. I don't know what they stand for. The Democratic Party, for sure, the Democrats are going through their own issues and concerns and schisms, and and that's all part of it. But uh, I definitely identify as a Democrat. When I learned about the fallout of your story, I thought, women can be in the CIA. <laughs> really? Well, gosh. Yeah. Um, and that really motivated me. And it, and it motivated me to learn about a part of the world I'd never learned before. I w- thank you. Um, I was lucky because my parents never gave me any indication that my gender should define what I could do or wanted to do. I'm really lucky that way, even though my parents were, were from an older generation. So 
I just thought that you can pursue whatever you want. Of course, when you get into the workplace, you go, oh, <laughs> it's not exactly a level playing field, but that, that's a whole other conversation. Okay, this is our lightning round on the women. Go-to fake drink. Club soda and twist. Uh, favorite go-to real drink. Mmm. I am enjoying Palomas with tequila. <laughs> Best hangover cure. Oh, I don't have one. I try not to get a hangover. Can we expect a social and dating guide from you after everything that you've learned oh. about people and observations? Uh, no, I would, I would hardly judge myself or I would not do that to anyone. No, I can barely figure it out myself. Why would I put it in a book? The phrase, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. What does mm -hmm. that mean? Uh, that actually comes from a, a great movie from the 50s. I don't know who starred in it. And that was the title. And it was a, a quick European jaunt through Europe. For me, many times when I was working for the CIA, I was traveling so much I'd wake up and be a little confused as to where I was until I would look at the notepad by the bed and go, oh, Cairo, right, right. If it's Tuesday, it must be Cairo. <laughs> um, do you still observe others closely? Yes. Anything that you noticed about me that stood <laughs> out? You have teal nail polish, which is like, <laughs> although it's been a while since you've had them done. <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> I was it, wondering if you had noticed that. Oh, man. Is it harder being a mom to babies, adolescents, teenagers, <laughs> or grown? It's all really, really, really hard. Um, and also really rewarding in different ways. There's no uh, – each stage has its joys and its uh, absolutely exhausting moments. Your next step, what you really want to do and thinking about um, running for mm. – uh, 2020. What are the things that are most important mm -hmm. to you for 2020? I love it here. Look, I have lived all over the world. This is the only place I feel like I'm home. So right now I am seriously considering running for an open congressional seat in uh, my district here, which is northern New Mexico. It's terrifying, but it's also exhilarating. I love the idea of maybe being able to serve my country again. Since I moved here 10 years ago, I have been deeply engaged in my community. So although I really, if I do this, I'm going to do a lot more listening and traveling around. However, because of all the things I've already done, I feel I have a good understanding of the challenges here. It's a beautiful part of the world, but boy, education, particularly uh, early childhood, to get kids and families off to a good start that that uh, yields dividends down the road, crime, employment, of course. I mean, it's, it's uh, Santa Fe is beautiful, but there's, throughout this whole district, very rural, and the economy and, you know, kitchen table topics are really important. I think a big issue in 2020 across the board is going to be healthcare. No kidding. Uh, so what does that look like? What works best? And keeping it all, understanding that all this has to be through the prism of what works best for this part of the world. Without the kids in the house, what's something that really surprises you about a different kind of solo chapter? Mm -hmm. I think, as I think Gail She has written about quite a bit, I think she wrote a whole book on this, on this second 
wind, the surge of energy that women in their 50s get because they're done with the nurturing. They're done making school lunches, um, you know, whether you're married or not. But you can really begin to focus on who you are and, and you still have a lot to offer. And uh, it's exciting. And um, I, I can't wait to, you know, write this next chapter. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm, I'm happy and, um, and busy and, uh, and, like everyone else, trying to figure it out. I can't wait to read, share, and support this next chapter. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. We were saddened to hear that Valerie's former husband, Joe Wilson, passed during the production of this podcast at the age of 69. Valerie announced her 2020 run for Congress in New Mexico's 3rd Congressional District in an unconventional ad. She shares her story her way, driving a Mustang in the outskirts of Santa Fe. Now I'm running for Congress because we're going backwards on national security, health care, and women's rights. You can find more about Valerie and follow her at ValeriePlameForCongress.com. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. Special thanks to Sabine Janssen, Kevin Murphy, Nora Kipnis, and Anne-Marie Baldonado. A very special thanks to Gail and Matt Reed. You can find a candid and somewhat awkward picture of me and Valerie and Santa Fe on Instagram at TheWomenPod. On our next episode, I'll go to Flint, Michigan, and speak with whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha about how she made the choice to risk her career to challenge Michigan authorities when she exposed that Flint water had lead poisoning. Go after me all you want. This has nothing to do with me, but this has everything to do with my kids. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What does DFU stand for? Don't up.